This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Interactions between people from various parts of the globe are a common occurrence in the 21st century. But though more infrequent in the late 18th and early 19th century, cross-cultural interactions in that time had a decisive impact, as we shall explore in the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. Welcome, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. To help us explore this topic, we have a special guest for this episode. Jeffrey Einboden received his Ph.D. from Cambridge University in 2005 and is currently Presidential Research, Scholarship, and Artistry Professor at Northern Illinois University. A specialist in the literatures and languages of early America and the Middle East, Einboden is author of several monographs, including Islam and Romanticism, which was published by One World in 2014, The Islamic Lineage of American Literary Culture, published by Oxford University Press in 2016, the Quran and Kerygma, published by Equinox in 2019, and most recently, Jefferson's Muslim Fugitives, The Lost Story of Enslaved Africans, Their Arabic Letters, and an American President, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. A 2017 Fellow of the American Council of Learned Societies, Einboden has also held fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities, including a 2011 award supporting his recovery, translation, and teaching of Arabic slave writings. It is his latest book, Jefferson's Muslim Fugitives, which was the main topic of our conversation. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. So, Jeff, to get us started, you know, as the title suggests, the two main points of connection with the various subjects discussed in your book are Thomas Jefferson and slavery. So that seemed like the perfect place to kind of launch our conversation. You describe Jefferson's, quote, engagement with slavery in Muslim Africa as being, quote, aptly framed by discretion and delay, silence and secrecy, intrigue and anxiety. Can you elaborate a little on this and also share whether this type of engagement with the subject of slavery was common in white American culture in Jefferson's time, or is Jefferson going outside of the norm and and engaging with these subjects? Wonderful, wonderful question. Well, first of all, Jerry, thank you so much uh, for having me on the podcast. Let me say that first. Some of the the kind of assonant terms that you're putting together really reflect the contradictions which are and tensions which are at the center of kind of Jefferson's psyche regarding slavery. And um, much of that language comes from, I think, the second chapter of the book where Jefferson is serving as envoy in Paris. And um, even while uh, his household back home in Virginia is populated and kept by enslaved persons, he is dealing with a uh, quote-unquote white Christian slave in Muslim North Africa, Richard O'Brien. And it puts him in this uh, very strange and ironic position of attempting to free someone who is enslaved in Muslim lands, even while in Muslim African lands, even while having people of African descent enslaved at home. And so that you have this um, kind of irreconcilable tension uh, which in some ways leads to these, I think, these moments of secrecy and silence, reticence, 
that uh, that the Sphinx, you know, the Jefferson's great uh, kind of reputation as the Sphinx, would 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 like to uh, pass over, but he cannot. Uh, he's demanded in part of his ambassadorial duties to deal with an American enslaved abroad, and so that's really the beginning where I start the the story of Jefferson's Muslim fugitives, which kind of unfolds for the next forty years, where Jefferson is always balancing between these issues of engagement um, and uh, being elusive on the question of slavery. Of course, Jefferson is known as the one of great contradiction on, um, you know, the horrific, peculiar institution of America, both championing individual rights and even uh, uh, seeming a, a kind of proto-abolitionist, and yet in his public stance, and yet privately benefiting and growing up and and perpetuating uh, slavery. And so that kind of tension proceeds over the 40 years that are covered by the book, um, which which center in eventually 20 years after his attempt to free Richard O'Brien in the October of 1807, when he receives Arabic writings by two Muslims enslaved in Western Kentucky. Absolutely. And that was one fascinating thing in reading your book is just how much there was to the subject and how many figures and how many pieces of presidential history kind of fed into the story that deals with some characters and and individuals that either are rarely discussed or have not been discussed until now. And you already mentioned one of the individuals that I had here, uh, Richard O'Brien, but also uh, William Eden is another American. You mentioned both of them in the course of your work as kind of adopting aspects of Muslim culture due to their uh, interactions with Muslim nations and, and the Muslim world. What prompted you to include them in this discussion? And what specifically do you think that their experiences can do to help your readers understand the larger themes of the work? That's wonderful. Um, I mean, in some ways, they're successor figures. Richard O'Brien is in um, Muslim North, North Africa, quote unquote, the Barbary States before Eaton. And uh, Richard O'Brien as being an enslaved um, uh, American in uh, Muslim North Africa, captured uh, while captaining a Philadelphian ship called the Dauphin. Yeah, he's put into Algerian prison and becomes really representative for his crew that over the next decade, many many of whom die in captivity, he's, he, he is retained in Barbary sla- slavery for upwards of a decade. He used to sign his letters in the U.S. press, you know, a slave in Barbary for 10 years, four months or something like that. Um, so was, he held that as a badge. But ironically, even though it was his claim to grievance, also in Muslim North Africa, he, he came to a a kind of great respect for the languages and cultures that he found there. And one of the things that I found most surprising about when I was researching O'Brien in relationship to Jefferson, as O'Brien is this catalyst for Jefferson to be thinking about the Muslim world while he's an ambassador in Paris, is that in O'Brien's own manuscript diary, he starts to write snippets of Arabic. And it's not included in the book, but I also found snippets of Arabic also in his letters, and so uh, one of the one of the re- reproduced manuscripts in the in the book is um, the first page of Richard O'Brien's Algerian diary, uh, in which he you know he he signs his name and claims the one thing that he owns yes as a slave, but he starts it with the the same words that begin the Quran just Bismillah in the name of Allah in the name of God, and so it's a very strange and odd um, kind of tutelage that he receives during his own enslavement. And he, he rises because he learns the languages and culture, cultures to become the, the consul 
the American consul in the Barbary states um, once she's freed. And so there's, there's a quite uh, an amazing ambivalence. And then maybe this is jumping up a little far too far, but once Jefferson does receive Muslim slave writings in America in 1807, there's one name that occurs to him to apply to for help to try to translate these Arabic writings penned in Western Kentucky by Muslim slaves, and that is Richard O'Brien. And so by the middle of the story of the book, he's put, he's put into a completely opposite position where he's a free man in Philadelphia again, and yet he is receiving um, enslaved writings by now Muslims in America instead of an American in Muslim lands. Eaton is a fascinating figure, <laughs> and he goes through many different uh, stages in the American mind, and and some some of them honorable, and some of them perhaps a little bit less honorable. But he's right in the right in the crux of so many of the dramas that are playing out in the 1790s and the first decade of the 19th century. He's a he's an adept of Timothy Pickering, um, not a not a not a big friend of Jefferson. Uh, he works Pickering with Pickering in his early life, working in quote unquote Indian country with Native North Americans, learning Native North American languages. And that eventually allows him to rise up by the beginning of Jefferson's presidency to pick really any uh, any position that he wants, and he wants something in North Africa. He's a major figure in the First Barbary War from 1801 to 1805. He's the the hero of the uh, to the shores of Tripoli. Uh, he undertakes that uh, mythic five or 600 mile trek from Alexandria, Egypt to Derna um, and to sue for, sue for peace. Really what Eaton wants is to overturn the regime in Tripoli, but eventually that ends up leading to peace. Uh, much to Eaton's chagrin, he wants a, an overturn in the government of Tripoli uh, in between 1803 and 1805. Jefferson uh, being once more, much more balanced, ambiguous, instead decides for peace rather than uh, fulfilling some of the American commitments to replace the current Pasha, uh, Yusuf Karamanli, with his brother Hamid. Um, and Hamid becomes one of the Muslim fugitives of the book. He's sent off into exile uh, into uh, Egypt and Tunis, and Eaton comes back to America, William Eaton, very bittered by that process. He had made a lot of promises in Barbary that were not kept up in his mind by the Jefferson administration. That all leads finally to his uh, return to the Eastern Seaboard, Washington, D.C., where he's uh, attendant uh, to the first Muslim ambassador to the United States, the first Muslim envoy to the United States, uh, someone named Suleiman Meli Melni, who comes from Tunis at the end of 1805. And Eaton finally finds himself also amidst the Burr conspiracy that I know the podcast, I don't believe, has reached up to yet, but I'm sure will occupy much. It's one of the most fascinating, I think, stories of the first decade of the, of the 19th century, in which I deal with, you know, in a few chapters in Jefferson's Muslim Fugitives. Eaton is one of the, one of the folks that Burr, Aaron Burr, approaches to try to seduce into helping him take over the Western territories of the United States and uh, found a new empire. And so Eaton, again, just like Richard O'Brien in this kind of ironic overturn and envelope, becomes a figure that uh, was overturning uh, Muslim governments in the, uh, in the Barbary Coast and in, in, in Barbary Africa, and then is attempted to be seduced by a former vice president of the United States to overturn uh, governments in, in, in America itself. Absolutely. And we are going to be covering quite a few of those subjects very soon on the podcast, so <laughs> stay tuned. Yeah. That, that was a nice uh, sneak preview for folks of what's to come. <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, that, that same episode involved, you know, one of your favorite people, now I know this, is Edward Prable, 
Oh, um, yes. <laughs> and um, I mean, one of the, one of the interesting things about the the kind of intermixing of identities that is happening in that first half of the first decade in the 19th century is when this Tunisian ambassador arrives in, I think he shows up at the White House on November 30th, 1805, Suleiman uh, Melimelni. He is eventually, he stays in, in the United States for almost a year. He doesn't depart Boston until the, the following autumn. But during that time, he, he meets a young man named Samuel Harris, this is not in the book, who was able to greet him in Arabic. He shows up to his hotel in Boston and, and blesses him and greets him in Arabic and, and grant, uh, 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 gives him his peace in Arabic. And Melanie Melanie is, is fascinated by this. The same Samuel Harris, who is a, a, a young kind of prodigy of, of Oriental languages, will be the same artist who also draws Preble's sketch, the, his portrait, that ends up being in his obituary publication by John Kirkland. Wow. Yeah, so there's these fascinating kind of interweaving figures. Again, this isn't part of the book, but that go between Muslim North Africa and America and back. And there's this kind of continual circulation with with, with with a kind of tight cast of characters. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, and it's interesting. I was actually just having a conversation with somebody this weekend about, you know, how interlaced these relationships were and so many people in conversation with one another and in so many wide geographies. I mean, it's really fascinating when you start to follow these threads and just see the connections. Since you mentioned him, let's let's stay with um, Melly Melny for a minute, because you had mentioned uh, when he arrived in Washington, D.C., it was around the same time that a delegation of Native peoples had arrived from west of the Mississippi River. Um, that was part of the Lewis and Clark expedition, making contact with these individuals and asking them to go back and meet with Jefferson in D.C. Would you mind sharing how both Melly Melny and the Native peoples were received by both the Jefferson administration and just Washington society in general? And what do you think this tells us about how Native nations and Muslim nations, respectively, were viewed by white Americans at that time. Yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating, and as far as I know, it's entirely providential coincidence. But as I mean, as you've been tracing through in the podcast, the kind of simultaneity of the Barbary Coast expeditions and engagements and violence uh, with the Western expansion. I mean, this is happening at the, the very same time, um, 1801 to 1805, and particularly 1803, 4, and 5, right? So the kind of culminates in, in my mind, as you suggest, that by the end of 1805, you have two delegations arrive. You have one delegation from, from Tunis, from Tunisia, and one delegation from Western Mississippi, one of Native Americans, uh, the latter and the former being Muslim North Africans. They receive a very similar reception um, and similar characterization. And so uh, we would expect that, I suppose, so that we, we get, you know, shameful words like barbarian being thrown around, not only by um, Americans, but by British attaches like Augustus Foster. 
But something kind of more interesting, I think, than, you know, the expected, expected bigotry of kind of white America is the, the reaction between the, that the engagement between actual Muslim North Africans and Native Americans that happened during this time. So Jefferson is hosting dinners in December of 1805, a kind of famous dinner that he hosts um, uh, at the end of the first week of December for Melly Melny in the invitations that go out for that dinner, he says, we're not going to eat until sundown, basically. And one of these, one of these invitations goes to none other than uh, John Quincy Adams, a future, a future president, a future uh, uh, engager with Muslim North Africa, as we might discuss later. And he does this, he asks for a, a kind of a late seating time um, and, and, and time to, to repast because it's Ramadan. Yes. And so it's out of respect for the Muslim envoys uh, during the same kind of time, there's parties, New Year's parties that 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 um, by by the by the end of the year, the beginning of of 1806, and this is where the Native Americans and Muslims are together in the same room. And the reports there are there are several reports. So one would maybe think that they are apocryphal, but there's several reports that kind of give us a, a sense of a cloud of witnesses that might, this this is true. That when Melny Melny the um, the envoy from from uh, from Tunis saw the Native Americans. He recognized what, in his mind, kindred peoples. So there was cultural attachments, ways of ways of behavior and mores that the the Muslim uh, North Africans saw in the Native Americans. And he claims that uh, the Native Americans were the sons of Ishmael, just as the 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 uh, uh, Muslim North Africans, Ishmael being um, uh, the progenitor of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. And so we, we have this sense of kind of, yes, white America seeing this kind of barbarian, quote unquote, otherness in both the Muslim North Africans and the Native Americans, and yet also a kind of kinship, at least from the, the perspective of the, the Barbary envoys. And so that it's, it's a kind of interesting collision between these kind of pre-Anglo-American moments coming together. And it's facilitated in, you know, New Year's parties that Jefferson is hosting at the president's house. Absolutely. It's, well, and, and it is fascinating to see so many different cultures coming together. And, and to me, that, that part of your book was, it does represent kind of a microcosm of what was going on on a larger scale. You know, thinking from the American perspective, as the nation was expanding and encountering new Native peoples, but then also expanding its influence abroad. But then you also do get this in American relations with certain peoples. It wasn't seen as being the same as, you know, relations with Britain and France. And No, not at all. And the, there's, um, there's also, I mean, this, this kind of link between Native Americans or Native America. So the, the you know, the territories um, originally occupied by Native Americans in North Africa it goes back very early in Jefferson's own career. I mean, one of the, you know, 20 years before Lewis and Clark, there was John Ledyard, who Jefferson had wanted to um, map the expanse uh, of, the, of the American West. And instead of trying to get John Ledyard to go from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific, he wanted Ledyard to go from the Pacific to the Atlantic. So from, from Russia, get through Russia, arrive in Nootka Sound, and then go down and, and proceed, uh, and proceed on to, to in the direction of east to the Atlantic. That wasn't possible. <laughs> Ledyard eventually was, was arrested 
by Catherine the Great and was impeded in his, his, his travels through Russia. But instead of mapping um, uh, the American expanse, he decided to instead go to North Africa. And that's where he died. So the, the first uh, uh, apostle of, of uh, mapping for Jefferson into the American West and eventually dies in, in Muslim North Africa. And so, I mean, this is, this is, a, kind of, this is kind of a collision tension expanse uh, that is that is in Jefferson's mind right from the 1780s uh, with that uh, Jefferson sent him from Paris. So, absolutely, it was fascinating to really get a sense of all of those different links of all those different instances of these connections with so many different peoples. Because you know you had mentioned uh, William Eden as well as originally being involved with relations with Native Americans and then going and ending up in North Africa. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, because the written word is kind of a a key thread that runs through your work. And especially I was thinking of the uh, account of the life and enslavement of Ibrahim Abidarapin. You discussed how, quote, his literacy in Arabic had gained him his liberty. And um, in various instances, you discuss enslaved individuals who could write Arabic. Would you mind elaborating on kind of the interplay between enslavement and literacy and how the Arabic language was perceived by non-Muslims and then also kind of the role of language and literacy in the Muslim world? Yes. I think this is the absolute critical pressure point of the entire book. And this is where why Jefferson becomes the kind of gravitational center of these three stories. So the book tells three stories of enslaved Muslims in the early U.S. spanning the 1780s and the 1820s. And the middle story that kind of includes them both is Jefferson's receipt of Muslim slave writings in 1807. Jefferson forms the chronological center of the book in this way, but it also uh, forms the conceptual center. For Jefferson, liberty and literacy or liberty and language go together. And of course, you know, the First Amendment, which, uh, you know, Jefferson did not write, but yet takes takes its cue from Jeffersonian principles that we can see, uh, you know, in the Virginian Statute for Religious Freedom that he was so proud of, right? It becomes the first lines of his epitaph, right? So, you know, in Monticello, if you go to the west side of Monticello, there's, you know, there's his grave and there's only, you know, three things that he's proud of. And one of them is the Virginia uh, Statute on Religious Freedom that connects together the idea of expression and liberation or emancipation. And so for Jefferson and his ambivalent, fraught, and often horrific um, uh, track record with enslavement, one of the exceptions that we have that the, that the book pushes is this moment of encountering enslaved peoples who are from Africa who are able to write. Yes? And they're able to write a language that he cannot read. And so these enslaved people, in fact, make our most intellectually invested um, early founding father uh, himself illiterate. And so there's this sense of uh, there's a sense of humility that I think is brought in with this, and this is why eventually, I mean, uh, uh, Jefferson elects to be uh, uh, a hesitant and conditional advocate for these two enslaved Africans of Muslim confession uh, because of the the um, the technique of writing. Now that's very problematic for us, I think, because you know that every human being has infinite worth and value, whether 
one is literate or not, but in the mind of Jefferson and the way in which the Enlightenment uh, mind in particular worked, literacy, liberty, you know, language expression and emancipation, all of these things were connected very, very deeply. And this also applies to both of the, the stories that, that kind of surround Jefferson in, the, in 1807. Uh, the book reveals the first act of Arabic slave writings in the newly formed United States, which I located in 1788 in, in uh, Georgia Seacoast. And in that moment, at the same, this, the, the only reason that that um, uh, singular enslaved person was noticed, and his name was Arsman, writing uh, Arabic just south of Savannah on a, a place called Parnassus Plantation, the only reason that, that we are able to recover, that I'm able to recover the name in the book, is because of an act of writing. So he garners attention by, uh, it ha- happens to be a, a New England elite named Abiel Holmes, the father of Oliver Wendell Holmes senior and junior, yes, and also a correspondent with Jefferson himself, he finds this um, uh, enslaved person who is able to write, and it's, a, it's an absolute dazzling experience for him. I mean, he writes in this kind of hyperbolic divine language about this enslaved West African who can write a language that even the most elite at, you know, at the proto-Ivy League cannot read, yes. And this happens at the, you mentioned um, Ibrahim Abdul Rahman, who played a role in the 1828 uh, election of John Quincy Adams and uh, Andrew Jackson. Quincy Adams, uh, during his presidency, uh, with the help of Henry Clay, helps to uh, emancipate this man who had been enslaved in, uh, in Natchez for 40 years. And he could still write Arabic, but he comes to the notice of even the president of the United States, later president, the surrogate boy of Thomas Jefferson himself, because of his act of writing. And he, of all of the uh, enslaved Muslims in the book, is the one that's able to procure freedom. Of course, uh, his story ends tragically. He's sent back to Africa. He only makes it to Liberia and not back to the Senegambia from where he had originally come. Uh, But it kind of makes this envelope that, yes, there's a distinction in the actual language um, that is appealing very much to this kind of enlightenment and romantic America, where it's really the only thing that can pierce some of the kind of hard-headed prejudices that are that are very much at play in the 1790s and the first couple decades of the of the 19th century absolutely and there's there's even posters from that from that 1828 election jackson you know takes uh the the presidency in in 1829 and leaves john quincy adams just a a one-term president um, like his father, and there's even you know uh, electioneering posters that Jackson is using uh, Adams is Adams Jr. His advocacy for this Muslim enslaved Muslim, this Muslim slave, to his benefit to try to get the the slaveholding plantation owners to vote for Jackson against Adams because Adams is clearly someone who has sympathy for enslaved Muslims. Absolutely, and and it is it it was fascinating that interplay between you know, the instances of enslaved individuals, of writing, and then this political element, you know, and, and you see that, and, and I think you portray that quite well with Jefferson trying to be very cautious about, you know, what he did with the two individuals that he knew of in Kentucky, and John Quincy Adams also likewise having to make some decisions and how this would have impact him politically. The politics of it are always an important element to consider, and we see that in numerous instances that you talk about. And and one of the 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. And I, I mean, it goes back to your original point about the idea of secrecy and and coding and uh, reticence and silence. Um, because to be honest, some of the some of the white politicians of the early nineteenth century would pay a price for even showing humanity to um, to other human beings who are enslaved. And so this is a this is a horrific irony. But I think this is also leads to some of the reason why these stories have stayed silent for two hundred years. And this kind of at the end of the book, I, uh, it jumps forward somewhat because the the last main figure of the of the book to collect Abdul Rahman's writings before he goes um, is sent back to Africa um, uh, uh, tragically to die is Edward Everett. And Edward Everett is this great figure that that kind of balances all of these uh, all of these all of these nuances and tensions. He's the last person that Jefferson ever writes the word slavery to in a letter. In April uh, 1826, he's a president of Harvard. Eventually, he's the governor of Massachusetts. Eventually, uh, but he's also an Arabic student. So he studies Arabic in Göttingen in Germany during his PhD and his youthful years. Sent there partly with his friends George Stickner, sent by sent by Jefferson to buy some more books after selling uh, his books to the Library of Congress. And Everett studies Arabic. He he gathers this kind of Arabic knowledge only to come back to the United States and meet in the U.S. Capitol a man who speaks Arabic, writes Arabic beautifully, Everett says, who has been enslaved in the United States for 40 years or uh, in the Americas, only recently into the United States uh, for 40 years. And then, of course, it's Everett who gives the Gettysburg Address <laughs> in November of 1863. So we usually think about the, you know, the iconic, um, uh, you know, two-minute speech of Abraham Lincoln. But the real Gettysburg Address was, was Edward Everett's, which was two hours <laughs> before Lincoln got up and gave his iconic uh, Gettysburg Address that, you know, quotes Jefferson, um, all men created equal. And so, the, so even, even, you know, at the height of the Civil War, you have someone who's an Arabist with Lincoln at this iconic moment in the midst of, you know, the, the nation tearing itself apart, uh, who has had engagements with Muslim slaves. And then at the very end of the book, I, I draw the line right till 1999 with Al Gore's Al Gore uh, launches his presidential campaign in 1999, uh, the steps of the Carthage courthouse, which is the last known place that we know that the Muslim slaves, the enslaved Muslims that spoke to Jefferson in Arabic were. So uh, by that time, you know, we're 200 years almost away from that moment that Jefferson had, and those writings had never been recovered. And as Al Gore is, you know, attempting to win the presidency in in a failed bid, a failed bid that will be defined by 9/11. Of course, when, when his when the victor of that of the election gets into office, George W. Bush, uh, it's ironic that that it's the very same place in American geography, and yet those traces, those um, uh, those ghosts from the past, are entirely silenced. Uh, and so the book attempts to kind of bring those back, to reinscribe to those kind of iconic places now of American politics or thought those stories in Arabic lines that we've forgotten. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, that, that is one thing. And especially with the podcast, again, I was having some conversations this weekend uh, with folks about just how far reaching history can be and, and the ties of history. And, and we really do see these interplays of, of writings of secrecy of, politics and and a fear you know the, of of otherness that continue on into the present day and and we really 
I think that's a, a way that readers can connect to your book is is in seeing these common threads that are still very much present in people from various backgrounds. That's true. And a lot of the business of forgetting was done before us. So even those who, you know, want to find out about these things, they're often buried. But the, the interesting thing about the materials that form Jefferson's Muslim Futures is, is that they're, they were hiding in plain sight for 200 years. So that there were these secret documents, but they were in the papers of the most prominent peoples, white men of the, of the early republic. So Ezra Stiles, who was the president of Yale during the revolution, he has the most rich Arabic slave writings in his papers, and they've just never been uh, recovered because I think most archivists just simply doesn't, don't know what this is. And then they put it in a, in a, in a corner and the same with Jefferson. I mean, it's, it, I mentioned in the prologue of the book that I've been teaching Arabic slave writings for several years at Northern Illinois University and teaching Jefferson alongside of them. But I, I, I was entirely ignorant that there was an actual link between these things until I started doing the archival work for this book, which started about 10 or 11 years ago. And so it, we, we, um, we can be forgiven, I think, uh, for not knowing these things because it's, they've been buried under generational, both kind of intentional and unintentional acts of forgetting. Absolutely. And this kind of brings me to another point, um, because, you know, this idea of even nowadays with scholars who don't necessarily understand Arabic and you encounter a sample of Arabic in in archives, what do you do with it? And and so you talked about at one point um, the treaty between the U.S. and Tripoli and Joel, Joel Barlow's translation work. And how there were inconsistencies between the translated version and the original Arabic treaty that you were able to kind of explore a bit, and in particular with Article 11. And I was wondering if you could talk about that for a minute and then kind of share the significance of this and what it might tell us about American relations with Muslim nations of that time. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, this was one of my favorite moments in writing the book and in researching for the book. I mean, so much of the book is dedicated to flushing out the context in Jefferson's life for his receipt of these um, enslaved Muslim documents that he receives in 1807 and trying to draw out the, the, the context and the atmosphere that, that makes them make sense. And my claim is throughout the book that once he opens these documents in 1807, he, he recognizes them immediately um, uh, he doesn't recognize what they say, but he recognizes this instance of literacy. And the reason why he does this is that in Paris, first with Thomas Barclay in the, the treaty with Morocco, which, he signed, which Jefferson signs uh, at the beginning of the year of 1787, he's receiving documents in Arabic, treaties in Arabic. He's also buying books in Arabic and developing friendships with great uh, Arabists like the Comte de Volnay in Paris. And so he's getting the, all of this kind of uh, context that will make the, the receipt of Arabic slave writings in 1807 make sense. On the way from that, in between those two moments, is the Treaty of Tripoli that is uh, translated, I'm putting in quotes, if the, in the podcast, Jerry can see me, but I'm putting in quotes, translated by Joel Barlow, which has been extremely contentious uh, because of its, as you said, its Article 11. So um, like any other American treaty with the Muslim world, you know, the, the, you know, treaty of amity with Morocco or something. It probably, you know, it's it's important, but very few folks, ex- except for specialists, would be interested. 
not the Treaty of Tripoli that Joel Barlow produces because of its Article 11 that makes a bold claim. And the Article 11 begins something like, whereas it's, it's, in, it's, in, this, it's in this kind of uh, presupposition mode, but whereas the government of the United States is in no way uh, based on the Christian religion, okay? And this was, this was done, in the English version was done in 1796, I believe, and then it, it was ratified by the, by the Adams government in 1797. I mean, so it's completely signed off with that Article 11 in there. And of course, it's been a contentious statement all the way through and happening within a treaty with the Muslim world, in particular, it makes it an incendiary, um, no matter where one stands in, in religious debate. One of the one of the long-standing kind of assumptions for the 20th century was that there was no such thing as an Article 11 in the original treaty, and that Joel Barlow, who was a great uh, Francophile, a revolutionary figure um, in France for for the for the for the French Revolution, that he basically made, makes this up and kind of channels Thomas Paine, channels Jefferson to put this kind of anti-Christian sentiment into this Muslim treaty. I was able to recover in Barlow's own papers, though, the original of the treaty, or what I believe is the original of the treaty. And it does very much clearly have an Article 11. The, the crux, though, is, or the hookup is, that it doesn't say that. It does not say that the, the, um, the governor of the U.S. is in no way founded on the, on the Christian religion. But it does emphasize precisely what is in Joel Bar- Barlow's, the rest of the, that, that article in the treaty, which is that Muslims and Americans, and we can take as read Christians in this context, um, have mutual sacred significance, okay? So um, in the Arabic, the words that that is used for uh, an American in Tripoli and someone from Tripoli in America is that their harama, the mahroom, they have this sense of sacredness. Um, Harama in Arabic has a sense of uh, sometimes taboo, sacred, sacrosanct. And so we could say, if you just, in a secular way, translate, it could be just that they're safe from any violence, um, sacrosanct in that way, but it has much more of a kind of religious tinge to it. And this is, I think, what's happening in the famous Article 11, is that Barlow is is thinking about kind of religious amity or harmony between the two places. And just just of that is is would have been a, a fairly incendiary in 1797 and perhaps in some quarters today as well. Absolutely. And, um, well, and especially thinking of that time and the, the factional divides that were going on at that time and religion playing a role in that in the United States. So, yeah, you can see why that was that. And, and even to the present day, you know, the role that religion still plays in American culture and society and politics, you know, you can see why that is so contentious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, it's, it's Article 11 that's been brought up over and over in both sides of the debate in terms of, you know, American religi- religiosity. And of course, it has a political, as a definitively political uh, intervention as well as happening in a treaty ratified by uh, U.S. government signed by a U.S. president. So, I mean, it has that kind of force to it. The The irony, of course, is that it's not in the original Arabic, yes, and it's only in the the English, but there is an original. The good news is that the book comes out with it, is that there is an original Arabic of, of uh, Article 11. It just doesn't correspond precisely, and yet it still has this sense, this religious re- uh, resonance to it, and that's the, that's the claim that I try to make in the book. Absolutely. 
Well, and I really enjoy all the context that you kind of frame, you, you kind of help to put these stories into, you know, helping us to understand kind of in various aspects um, how Americans and Western Europeans were approaching the Muslim world. And um, one of the interesting ones that you pointed to was a literary tradition of the time of American and European authors writing about Muslim characters. And you note that this is a tradition that Jefferson was familiar with as he clipped one of the representative poems for his scrapbook. What do you believe that this literary this literary tradition tells us about how these non-Muslims viewed people from Arab nations and the Muslim faith? Yeah, and there's it's a wonderful question. I think there's there's such a diverse um, literature that grows up in the 18th century into the early 19th century, where Muslim figures play a central role. Uh, Turkish spy novels, these kinds of things. You know, the uh, Turk the Turk in Philadelphia this kind of thing. And um, there's a lot of different kind of motives behind them. Yes. Some of them kind of lead up and echo into something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, now, even though it's not uh, specifically dealing with uh, Muslim characters. There's a sense of a kind of polemical didactic quality where we're a- a- attempting to come to terms with an otherness in the 19th century um, and form sympathy empathy, those kind of the feeling with the characters. Other times it's much more hostile um, or l- a lot less sympathetic. Jefferson himself, this is one of the one of the aspects of Jefferson's career that I think needs to get a little bit more play, even though, you know, he's thought of as, you know, the enlightened mind, philosopher, uh, uh, legalistic lawyer. And then we have this a sense of, uh, you know, a budding scientist a horticulturalist, you know, Jefferson. There's also Jefferson the literati, yes? And he, of course, he loves the Greek and Latin classics, but he's much more wide-ranging in his reading and aesthetic interests. And this is partly why at the end of his life, after selling the, his library to the to Congress to become the new Library of Congress after the destruction of, of Washington by the British, that he needs folks to go to go to Europe and buy him more books and to replenish his stock. And he says, not for instruction any longer, for, but for entertainment. But for Jefferson, entertainment is a, is a very serious thing. It's a very earnest thing, let's say. He, but he, Jefferson himself was, was at the heart of this kind of uh, literary revival of the Muslim world uh, in his translation of a text that that is precisely a kind of Muslim land travelogue. And this is a figure that I just mentioned, French um, Arabist named uh, Comte de Volnay, Volnay is, a, is, is actually a kind of pseudonym from two different words in French, Voltaire and Vernet. But uh, Volnay was this political figure, Arabist, Orientalist, traveler in the, in the Muslim world. And Jefferson and Volnay meet in Paris sometime around 1785, 1786. Volnay comes back from the Middle East in 1785. Jefferson comes from, comes, uh, from America in 1784. They meet sometime around then. Um, and for, for a fast relationship and friendship, Volney eventually visits Jefferson. He's one of the fugitives in the book. He's a Muslim invested fugitive. He's not Muslim, but he's uh, interested in Muslim lands. He becomes a fugitive from, from the reign of terror in France um, and spends time uh, in, uh, in America with Jefferson. He's one of the figures who makes the connection between Native American languages and Muslim uh, Islamic tongues, uh, Middle Eastern tongues. He draws connections between the Miami Algonquin language and Arabic 
uh, as far-fetched as that sounds, he's, he's writing these kinds of things as he's, as he's visiting with Jefferson. Together, they form this kind of literary pact, which again is in secret for Jefferson to translate Volney's um, travelogue in the Muslim world called The Ruins or Meditations on the Revolutions of Empire. And Jefferson translates um, the first 19 chapters of this text. And in translating it, he translates, you know, the most core tenets of Islam. He translates the Shahada. Uh, There's no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet. Um, he translates that, you know, in, into Jeffersonian English. Yes. Um, these are the kinds of things that we don't usually think of. And it's a very imaginative aesthetic work. It's, it's, it's a meditation on politics, on religion, on history, but it also has a kind of frame narrative that makes it a literary work. And then, of course, the, the one who translates the rest of the work is none other than Joel Barlow, who so fancifully translated, you know, Article 11 of the treaty they were just speaking about. So these things all work together. But Jefferson is very much in the midst of this as a kind of, uh, Middle Eastern literati, um, which is is not really usually the way that we think of him. Absolutely, and that's that is one thing with studying Jefferson. There are just so many different layers and and so many different so many different subjects that you can study Jefferson and whatever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I mean I mentioned this in the prologue. Is that there seems I mean it's it's been said before that. There is a, exactly as you say, Jerry. There's 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 infinite studies that is Jefferson and you know Jefferson and cuisine or uh, Jefferson's moose or you know a kind of lively lighter fare and then also extremely deep disturbing challenging texts as well and so this uh, on Jefferson and studies and so this this was one of the shocks of finding enslaved Muslims. They're, you know, the only pieces of writing that, that these two folks uh, have surviving in Jefferson's own papers, right? So connecting him to another, another and, but one that's kind of deeply at the heart of the, of the national psyche. Well, and, and this idea of hidden messages, you know, whether it's through ciphers that were intended to conceal a communication or messages in a language that were incomprehensible to the reader, this is another thing that really runs through and resonates in your work. And for me, that seems to resonate with this premise of uncovering the hidden story of enslaved Muslims in early American history. So I was just wanting to see if you could speak to what drew you to this topic and what do you hope your readers take away from your work? Thank you. Well, I came to the field itself in a, in a kind of circuitous way. I'm Canadian and I did my graduate work uh, in England, so I was at the Cambridge uh, for for my for my graduate studies, and so so I come to the national tradition in a very kind of international frame, both personally and, and scholastically. But but at the beginning of my career, I started out as both a Middle Eastern languages person as well as an early Americanist, and that there's there's few and far between the folks who are doing that together, and this is why the there's a kind of profusion or cloud of witnesses of, of manuscripts that are available to recover simply because the, in the early Republic, there were so many figures, particularly at the top of institutions who were interested in Middle Eastern languages, Hebrew, most obviously, but also Arabic and Persian. Uh, I've mentioned a few of them already, already uh, now, including Jefferson himself. And so these figures collected these manuscripts in Hebrew, Arabic, and Persian, and they've been laying kind of there waiting for for discovery as for the, you know what the 
as I mentioned, I mean, I, I didn't know this connection between Jefferson and Muslim slave writings when I began teaching Muslim slave writings. I got a, a grant from the NEH in 2011 to try to recover as many Arabic documents that had not been discovered so far. And I spent a lot of time in North Carolina and South Carolina. And I, I, Jerry, I know you know that, uh, you know, Davidson College, I think, well, oh, yes. Davidson has, you know, some of the greatest riches of, of Arabic slave writings by someone named Omar bin Sayyid, who was a slave in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, lives right until 1863, produces a whole autobiography in Arabic. And so my early work was on Omar bin Sayyid, who's not featured in this, uh, in this book on Jefferson. But beyond, beyond his papers, the, the most the predominance, the bulk of the material in Arabic are found amongst these kind of leaders of the, of the early nation. And so one of the things that I think is useful to take away from this and the idea of literate slaves and literate enslaved persons of Muslim confession is the idea of the, overturning the hierarchy of power through literacy that happens in an instant in these engagements. And so, um, of course, there's a hierarchy of power in terms of physical power, of political power. Those are not overturned, though sometimes they're mediated or, or, or mitigated by literacy, as we've talked about Abdulrahman finally gets his freedom because of his literacy. But there is an intellectual, cultural uh, overturning of power that's possible through these moments where these, you know, the, the folks, you know, Ezra Stiles, Jefferson at the top of institutions, Yale, the U.S. government find that they are unable to read these uh, these texts penned by enslaved Africans, and so th- that that I think the the awakening uh, in the American mind had actual material effects in the the, the history of abolition. Ezra Stiles joins in Connecticut, an abolitionist society, after receiving these documents. Jefferson has this brief conditional contingent moment in finding Muslim slave documents that opens him up to a different possibility that's usually shut down in every other uh, sphere of his life. Edward Everett becomes uh, a devotee of abolition, even giving the, the Gettysburg Address with Lincoln by 1863 after having a, an actual um, encounter with a Muslim slave. And so I think, I think those kinds of overturnings of of hierarchy through um, a different language of, of multilingual and thinking about America in those terms. That's the other kind of bringing together of Native Americans and Muslims from the, the so-called Barbary Coast is that, the, that America was peopled and engaged and infused with languages and cultures and religions far beyond the more narrow scope that we understandably first allow students to, to receive just so that they get the, the, you know, the received story, but there's so much else going on in the early Republic. Absolutely. Well, and, and thinking of kind of this approach and trying to uncover these hidden stories, I wanted to ask you, I, I imagine that there have been some rather unique challenges that you faced in your research. So I was wondering if you would speak to that for a moment. Well, I mean, one of the th- one of the wonderful things about these these documents and uncovering them, there's such a eureka moment, and it's in some ways it's very poignant, emotional to find enslaved people's their last written testaments that have been buried for 200 years, but they're few and far between, right? So I have been, you know, sp- spent the last 10, 11 years searching for these precisely these kinds of documents. And when they arise, they're more powerful than, you know, one can anticipate. 
but it takes a lot of searching. Nowadays, it's a lot easier because with the digitized archives and major archives are being more and more cataloged online. So you can actually go into item level, folder level kind of discretion to find documents, which is absolutely wonderful. But I would say that's 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 been the primary challenge. I mean, I, I feel extremely blessed that during my student days that that I spent my time on Middle Eastern languages in order to prepare myself to be an Americanist. I mean, this is completely unlikely kind of trajectory, but that's that's really the only possible uh, way for me to have been able to 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 accomplish what I have. So, and one thing that you know we've seen in the podcast, and I think just that people see in life is that sometimes we go down a path and it leads us to places that we never would have imagined. But in many instances, you know, it's a place that has great possibility. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, one gets a, one gets a sense of the kind of the providence of ignorance sometimes or that, uh, <laughs> that, that even if, if one had have been able to anticipate one wonders if one of, would have un, uh, embarked and not knowing all the challenges. So sometimes, sometimes not knowing where leading is, is allows you to get there, I think. Absolutely. Well, and as we're wrapping up, speaking of where we're going, I was wanting to see if you could speak to, because I read in another interview that uh, you recently gave that you have a couple of new projects that you're working on. Uh, would you mind sharing those with the audience? Sure. So, um, Jared, just as you were saying that there's so many different connections with Jefferson, uh, you know, that's it's kind of uh, endless in the, the profusion of materials that, that surround him and his interests. My my next project has come up already a couple of times in our discussion is a study of uh, Native philology, Native American languages in Jefferson, and specifically the role of Orientalism or Middle Eastern language study in the characterization of Native American languages um, via uh, Jefferson's efforts. And so one of the things that pops up in Jefferson's Muslim Fugitives very briefly in Jefferson's engagements with Ezra Stiles in the 1780s is their discussion of the origins of Native Americans. And uh, Jefferson notes the styles that he believes that Asia was peopled from America, not the other way around, right? Um, and so we get this, this sense of the kind of priority of the Native American in, in, the, in the Middle Eastern Asian world. And so I trace that through in the next project and thinking specifically how that impacts the linguistics that um, Jefferson engages through the American Philosophical Society great figures like Duponceau. So that's that's what I'm working on right now. And then the the next project, it's kind of a companion project, a different kind of successor to Jefferson's Muslim Fugitives, is tentatively um, entitled right now, uh, Chains in the Crescent. And it's going to be a study of Islam in the Civil War and the, an expose of the, the Muslim soldiers, veterans, Muslim soldiers and slaves uh, between 1860 61 and 1865 and also the islamicate portraits of lincoln that were that flew all around in the press during the civil war and so it's a kind of bringing up to date and you know the next kind of you know you know the the second uh war that defines the the american the uh, in the in the early republic from the revolution and now it's the kind of companion piece of the civil war well i'm very excited to read both Thank you so much for coming on and thank you for all of your work and in particular, A, giving us a a new perspective on the early Republic and on the various peoples that populated that world and, and that really 
that have been in many cases lost to history. Thank you so much for your work in bringing them back to life and back to light so that we really can have a true appreciation of what the world was and what the world is and what it can be. Thank you, Jerry. And thank you so much for allowing me to, to speak to you and, and, and to, your, to your listeners as well. And once you're done with your next projects, we hope you'll come back on and talk to us about them. I will be delighted. And I have to say it's reciprocal because as I'm listening through the podcast week by week, I'm getting more and more. Um, and it's, it's so the, your work is absolutely wonderful and, and we're all benefiting from it. Thank you so much. Special thanks to Jeff for agreeing to come on the podcast and share his work and insights with us. If you haven't read it already, I highly recommend that you get a copy of Jefferson's Muslim Fugitives, The Lost Story of Enslaved Africans, Their Arabic Letters, and an American President. I'd also like to thank Sarah Payne from Oxford University Press for connecting Jeff and me. Without her, this interview could not have happened. Special thanks to the Itinerant Band for allowing us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff Einboden or the Itinerant Band, or check out past episodes, as well as other presidential history resources that I've linked to, go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. This podcast is supported by so many in numerous ways, so I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our patrons. Thanks so much to Matthew, Michelle, Kara, Scott, and our newest patron, Jeremy. It's been great since I launched the site on Patreon earlier this year to see that others shared my enthusiasm for presidential history and were willing to contribute to the work of this podcast through providing financial support, so I can't thank them enough. If you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash presidencies and sign up. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help to ensure that this podcast is able to continue for years to come. If you aren't able to contribute financially, but would still like to support the podcast, there are many ways in which you can do so. Leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other platform that has that capability helps to get the word out about the podcast. You can also follow me on social media and share new episodes as they come out. If you're not connected with me on there already, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you have a question or would like to send some comments through email, send those on to Presidency's Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Connecting to listeners is one of the greatest joys of podcasting, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time out to listen to episodes and reach out through one of the various means available. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, 
Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.